Anyone ever have an argument in their home? No, don't raise your hands. <laughs> Relationships often or, or sometimes have disagreements. When you have two different people with different opinions, there's things we have to work through. And what's interesting is how do we work through those? How do we move on from those? And how do we restore relationship when there's been a tense time? After we've had a disagreement with someone, isn't there a time usually of like, okay, are we okay? Is, is everything back to normal? And so we have this idea, and the same is true of, of my kids. When I discipline my kids, it's really fascinating, and they all do it in different ways, but they all, after discipline, are looking at me to, to see if it's okay, to, to see if we're okay. My youngest will go to her room and write out little notes and cards and bring them to me because she wants to be okay with daddy and she wants to be okay with mommy. Uh, my sons will look at me and, and wonder what we're going to do and how I'm going to respond. And part of my responsibility as a father is to respond to that and help them know where we go after discipline. What we do. Is everything okay? How do we proceed? Because if I don't do that, if I leave them hanging, I'm actually injuring their little hearts. And I'm not doing what God will show us in His example today. So what do we do after failure? If you remember last week, we talked about the children of Israel and they had a failure of epic proportions. One that cost them a battle. Because Achan, because of one man who disobeyed Harem, the the devoted things, and took some of the things that God said don't take, and he hid them under his tent, that Israel lost a battle and 36 men died. They were routed and disheartened. And as we studied last week through chapter 7, we saw that that first there was some blaming of God and God said, wait a minute, this wasn't me. This was your sin that did this. Let's take care of it. And Joshua, to his credit, immediately got up and took care of it. And sin was removed from the camp. And Achan was punished. He he and his family were killed. The, The items were destroyed and given back to God. And that's where we ended the story last week. Chapter 7 and chapter 8 of Joshua really are, are part of the same story. We only heard half the story last week. And so as we come to this week, we're continuing the story. We're picking up where we left off. And you can just imagine Joshua and the children of Israel thinking, okay, where are we with God? Would you want to be part of the advanced, um, advanced troops that go into the next battle? Yeah, I don't know. Are we really okay with God? And so there's this moment of, okay, what do we do now? And what we're going to see in Joshua 8 is God takes care of that. And He steps in and He makes it very clear where we go from here and what restoration looks like. Reminding ourselves of a little bit about AI. Um, I don't think we got to show the maps last week. We had some technical difficulty If you remember, the children of Israel crossed over here. Here's Jericho. Gilgal would be about two miles east of of Jericho, where their main camp was. And now they're going up up into the mountains. And this is, remember, a mountain range, whereas this is the lowest part on earth. This is a mountain range of about 3,000 feet. Some of the mountains were, you know, give or take, depending on the, the range. And they're going up on the map you see to Bethel. And that is just about one or two miles east of Ai. In fact, some think that AI, and we don't know for sure because they're, they're still discovering things. The picture that I'll show in a moment of 
the tell of AI, which is the, the mound, what we think, that's been just discovered in the last 10, 12 years. Um, and so it's interesting to see how archaeology is confirming God's word. But it looks as if AI might have been an outpost post for Bethel. And so AI was a smaller garrison, a fortress. Bethel appears to have been a city. And so we're going to see in the story today that both fought together, which um, lends credibility to that, that idea. We don't know for sure, but it's just some of the interesting things to think about. And so the children of Israel are coming up to AI. And as we know from last week, they were soundly defeated. And we come to our text this week to say, okay, what's going to happen? Turn with me to Joshua chapter 8. Joshua chapter 8. And we see a story of restoration. A story of recommitment. Of what can happen after sin is repented of and dealt with and confessed. How do we go on? So in Joshua chapter 8, starting at verse 1, and actually I'd like to go back to verse 26 of the chapter before, remind ourselves of the end of chapter 7. And they raised over him a great heap of stones, meaning Achan, that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. And so the context of chapter 8 is sin was dealt with, they were repentant, and God's anger was satisfied. Okay, that's important as we go into the discussion today. That's the, the groundwork. Sin was dealt with, they repented, and God's wrath was satisfied. So as we talk about restoration today, it's after repentance and after sin is dealt with. Make sense? It's not while sin is still in the camp. Because if sin is still in the camp, God is still angry. His judgment of harem still falls on them. And so we come to chapter 8 to see what happens after failure. What happens after the sin is dealt with? And the first point that we see in the first two verses is rest assured that God forgives and restores repentant people. Rest assured that God forgives and restores repentant people. Let's read the first two verses of chapter 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. And in two short verses, we see an introduction to what's going to happen throughout chapter 8. And we see God coming and taking the initiative to restore His people to Himself, restore relationship, restore a work. And there's four areas of restoration that you see. The first is there's an encouragement and restoration of the heart. There's an encouragement and restoration of the heart. After we've dealt with sin and confessed sin, there's this fear sometimes, and the lie from Satan is, I am afraid God will still punish me. I'm afraid God is still angry at me. And at the beginning of verse 1, it's the first thing God deals with. And Yahweh said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. And he's dealing with issues of his heart. He's dealing with relationship issues with him. You don't have to fear me anymore. You don't have to fear that you are haram and under judgment. Do not be dismayed. Don't lose heart. Be encouraged. Do you remember when he said this before? It was in chapter 1. 
And so God's bringing Joshua back to the beginning. It's a new beginning. And saying, don't fear. Don't be dismayed. It's been dealt with. You know, when we in human relationships have sin that have intervened and hurt, it's natural for some distance to be there. It's hard. But what we're seeing in in how God deals with His people and and a couple of areas we're going to see in chapter 8, we'll learn some things about God, how He deals with people after sin. We'll learn some things about how we go on after sin from Joshua. But you would expect distance in, in our personal relationships until someone initiates restoration. And in this case, God is the initiator. He initiates restoration. It's why I say dads in your homes, you're to be the initiator for restoration. You're the one to step in and after discipline, make sure relationships are restored. Make sure your kids know, do not fear and do not be dismayed. That doesn't mean do not fear if you you still have sin. Remember the context. Sin is dealt with. Confession and repentance has happened. It's a powerful statement to me that God starts this way. That God comes to His people and gives assurance. They don't need to be in fear of their previous defeat. God's not angry anymore. Enjoy relationship with Him. The Apostle Peter, in one of his early sermons in Acts chapter 3, captures this idea when he says in Acts 3, 19-20, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And we sang about this morning. Your sins are taken care of. But then he goes on to say that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Sin destroys relationship with God. We can no longer experience His relational presence. But repentance restores that and brings refreshing. We need to know that. We need to rest assured of that because Satan will try to convince us that God is still angry and that there is no hope of relationship. But think about it. Was the cross enough to pay for our sins? Was the blood of Christ and His grace and His mercy enough to cover our sins? If it is, then relationship will be restored. God wants that relationship with His people. Encouragement and restoration of the heart. The second area of restoration you see, and these two verses just encapsulate so much, a restoration of God's work. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Next phrase, take all the mighty fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. Let's get back to it. And it fights the lie from Satan after we've sinned and repented that says, I can't be used by God anymore. And I, I, I talk with people who are, are coming through sinful things and repenting and turning to God or people that have a past and they're like, I don't know if God can use me. Is the grace and the blood of Christ enough? If it is, then He can use you. Amen? This is a beautiful story of God's grace and love in the Old Testament with the people and we'll see through sacrifice for us under the New Covenant because of Christ's blood. And so God says, take all the fighting men with you. Arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. Now again, God's reminding them that he's the one that does the work. I have given you. I don't know if you're sick of that theme yet through Joshua because it's been in every chapter. 
and it's, and it's repeated over and over and over. I'm the one doing the work. In fact, last week in chapter 7, what was one of the problems? Sin was the main problem, but what's one of the things they did? They went up to Ai without God telling him to go. And so God didn't give them the city. Because God knew there was sin in the camp. The, the right thing would have been to, to wait for God's direction, to seek his heart, to say, search me, O God, and know my heart. But now sin's dealt with, and God says, it's time to go. I'm the one doing the work. And so a restoration of God's work. See, we see a restoration of God's favor in verse 2. And this fights the, the lie that says, I won't be able to experience God's goodness again until I earn it. Well, the news is we never earn God's goodness. We didn't earn God's goodness with salvation. We can never re-earn God's goodness after sin. It's God's grace and His mercy that restores us if we come to Him with a repentant heart. In verse 2, let's look at that. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Okay, not good news for Ai. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Is that different? What did he say in Jericho? Don't take anything. Don't touch. Burn it all. Any precious metals go to my, my coffers, God says. In this case, he says, you, you'd get the spoil. Take of it. Take the livestock. Now keep in mind, manna has stopped, and so there's a need for some food, and God's providing for His people in this way. But this is God's favor. And, and we might say, well, why is God changing? He's giving different rules for different cities. Remember, the principle of harem is that God owns it all. It, it, it's all His. He can distribute it as He sees fit in His wisdom and in His mercy. <clears throat> God gives good gifts. He's not holding back from His people because of previous sin. Don't we do that sometimes? I, I think of parenting after one of my children has, has misbehaved and just really been rebellious on something and we've disciplined my first impulse after that is not, let's go get ice cream. My, my first impulse is to sort of rail on it a little bit more. You need to prove yourself, and then maybe we'll go do something good. And parents, I'm not saying go get ice cream after every discipline. But isn't it inter interesting that right after this major failure from the children of Israel, God says, by the way, you can take what you want from the next city. And again, it's a testimony to God's grace and His love and His restoration. Can't help but thinking, if only Achan had waited a city. If only instead of taking matters into his own hand, he had trusted God's timing. He would have gotten everything he wanted. But no, he wanted to be in control and he wanted what he saw. And he coveted and he took. And finally... In verse 2, we see a restoration of God's direction. A restoration of God's direction. The last phrase, lay an ambush against the city behind it. I know it's just a short phrase, but we're going to find out as we go through the chapter there was more instruction that came with it. God is directing them not just to go up and take the city. He's giving them strategy. He says, you know what? And, and we're going to, to, to read about this as we go on. Take a group, put it behind the city, and, and here's how we're going to take the city. That's an evidence of God's direction, His leading. And so many times when we've sinned, we can think, and, and we can think wrongly so, that we have messed up God's plan for our lives. 
God didn't expect me to sin this way. His plan's done. I don't know what He's going to do. God knows what He's going to do. Nothing surprises Him. And so we see God directing His people again. Again, God is initiating the action. He didn't do that in chapter 7. I read these two verses in this whole chapter and I praise God that He is a God of forgiveness. A God of second chances. A God of grace. A God of new beginnings. God wants to forgive. Think about that for a minute. God wants to forgive. We can be in in self-guilt over sin that we've confessed to God, but He has promised to cleanse it. He has promised to restore us. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, and we studied this about a year ago, to the church at Laodicea, a church that was lukewarm, that was not following God. And he writes, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. That's chapter 7 of Joshua. Chapter 8 is verse 20. Behold, I stand in the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And that verse is written to professing believers that have fallen into sin, that repent. And God says, I want to come in and I want to eat with you, which was a sign of communion. It was a sign of friendship, of relationship. I want to be restored to you. How do we apply this thought, this concept of God's forgiveness and that He restores a repentant people? We need to believe it. We need to believe that God can restore us anything that we come out of if we repent and truly come to Him. It is His work, not ours. He restores. See, guilt is one of those things that is a two-edged sword. The Holy Spirit uses conviction and guilt when we have sin in our lives to draw us to the Savior. But when we come to the Savior and it's confessed and cleansed, then Satan uses it to keep us from the Savior. To paralyze us. And we have to know that God really does forgive. Otherwise, we will never be able to step out and work for Him. But the second application, which is something to think about, is do we forgive like God? Do we model what God does? In Matthew 18, we, we, in fact, in your community groups this week, you studied about church discipline, and, and we read through the, the passage on what to do if someone is unrepentant and the steps to take in a church. The very next story in Matthew 18 is the parable of the unforgiving servant. And that's the parable where this man owes a king a, a large sum of money, maybe a million dollars, some of estimated different amounts. And he goes to the king and says, I can't pay it. And instead of throwing him in jail, the king says, I forgive your debt. And then as he's walking out, a man that owes him 20 bucks comes to him and says, I can't pay it. And he throws him in jail. Debtor's prison. Ridiculous, right? King finds out about it, not happy, and punishes and disciplines. That's the next story after church discipline is an instruction to say how much God has forgiven you, you need to be willing to forgive others. And I think it's there very intentionally by the Holy Spirit to remind us when someone repents, our responsibility is to forgive and to restore. And to not do that is to defy the very forgiveness that God has given us. 
Charles Spurgeon says this, let us go to Calvary to learn how we may be forgiven. And then let us linger there to learn how to forgive. That is so true. Linger at Calvary. Linger on what God has done for you and learn to forgive. Those two verses are really the heart of this story. We get back and we'll go through the rest of the points a little quicker because the rest of the points go through the action and go through what's happening. In point number two, get back to God's work. How do we recover from failure, a moral failure? Get back to God's work. In verses 3-9, through nine, we see the story continue. See, repentance and restoration provide opportunity for a renewed focus on God, for obedience to His work. In verse 3, So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city, obedience to God, behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee from before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, They are fleeing from us, just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it in your hands. Sick of that phrase yet? Here it is again. The Lord is the one doing the work. And as soon as you see, you have, as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out. And they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. There was no time for wallowing. There was no time to, to worry about, well, okay, maybe God will restore us or not. God says, don't be afraid. It's restored. It's taken care of. Now let's get to work. And they did it. Just a, a fun picture from where we think AI probably was. Um, AI, the, the current um, dig looks as if they're, they're discovering that this fits the timeline in the, um, the area around AI. And this is looking from the north. So if you think of this from the north, this is east where the children of Israel were coming from. And this is west where eventually you get to the Mediterranean Sea. And so the children of Israel are coming up quite possibly. We don't know this for sure. It's a little bit of conjecture, but it's sort of fun to see how the land might, might fit. This would have been between Bethel and Ai. Talk about a great place to hide for an ambush. It's a wadi there, which is an old riverbed. And so quite possibly that's where the ambush force was. Maybe some down over here. And then as the people from Bethel came up, um, they could have um, taken them. Or as the people of Ai went out, then we see that they took the city. So just sort of something fun as we, we think about geography and how it all fits together. But the idea is that God re-engaged them right away and they had opportunity to obey. See, the longer we stay away from God's work, the longer that we we don't engage, the harder it is. And I I talk with people all the time and that, that this is true of, and the longer that we don't do ministry and that we don't engage, it just gets harder and harder to, to start back up. I remember a story of a man I was talking to that um, worked on the People Mover and, and helped build the People Mover at Disneyland. 
I don't know if you remember the people mover. It's not there anymore. So some of the younger ones are like, what's the people mover? It's the thing that later became the rocket rods that worked for about a month. And um, now it's that empty track that's above Tomorrowland. It used to have this little tram thing that went through that was really cool. I wish they'd bring it back. And, and this guy that was helping build it was working on the electrical. And at that point, they just had a platform. And, and there was no cars yet. And they were riding along on a test run through it on this platform. And they got to a part on the track over the Utopia track. And the next set of motors wasn't on. And so it just screeched to a, a halt because the next motors weren't running it. And, and so this man got on the radio and said, and get those motors going. And they flipped the switch, got the motors going, and it jerked the car. And in fact, it jerked it so hard that he ended up doing a flip off of it and landed on the Utopia track down below. Landed on his feet. And so he got back on the radio and said, okay, come pick me up. Let's do this again. And he got right back up, got on the horse, as we say, and, and kept going and, and got right back to it. That's a little bit of what God's doing with the children of Israel. He's like, there was failure, sin in the camp, punishment, it's been dealt with, now let's get back up on the cart. And let's renew the purpose of why we're here. It's not to wallow, it's to do God's work. Get back to God's work. So we read on. We read through the battle, and all of that's sort of a precursor to the battle. That's the plans and the planning phase. And in verse 10, we get to the actual battle and seeing it unfold. And point number three is let God turn failure into victory. Let God turn failure into victory. Let's read verses 10 through 23. Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel before the people of Ai, and all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces. The main encampment was to the north of the city, its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent the night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. Arabah is the Rift Valley, the Jordan Valley, so they were going east. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. To Ai, this was just like before. And they're thinking, they're stupid. They're coming up just like before. We killed them before. We're going to go back out and kill them again. Verse 15, And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. Now who's overconfident? They left the city open. They didn't even shut the gates behind them and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city, and the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it, and they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers, and they found themselves in the middle of an Israelite army sandwich. 
And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. Fascinating passage. There's a lot that we could deal with there. But it's a testimony to two things. Obedience of the people and God's faithfulness to His Word. God turned their failure from the battle before into victory. In fact, He used the failure before to lure the army of Ai out to create victory this time. And I think about that with failure in our lives. How many times do we just want to hide it and not let anyone know when God wants to use it for His glory? and use it for victory. And so we see a people here who are willing to to obey God. They obeyed His plan. They obeyed what Joshua said. They were willing to give up their own fear. What if we're defeated again? Their own sense of control to try to follow God's will. And God was faithful. He was faithful because His hand was with them again. Because sin had been dealt with. Had been taken care of. So a couple of, of interesting issues. One that I want to mention, you might notice that, that in verse 3 it mentioned 30,000 men, and now in, in verse 11 it mentions 5,000 men. There's a lot of talk about how that works itself out. Some have said maybe it was a scribal error on one of those. Others have said it quite possibly, and, and I, we're not sure, but I think I lean to this one, it quite possibly was two different ambush forces. Keep in mind the city of Bethel. And Bethel would probably join the fight. And so quite possibly, one of them was an ambush force for for the army of Bethel that would be coming out. The other was the ambush force that would go into Ai and burn the city. It's possible. Um, The third option that that scholars have said is quite possibly the 30,000 represents the whole force that was chosen, the main force that was chosen. And then out of that, 5,000 was chosen to go into that ravine, ravine for an ambush. That's a possibility too. Um, the text actually, any of those last two possibilities would be possible. But the bigger picture isn't so much 30,000 and 5,000. The bigger picture is that they obeyed God's plan and it worked. And Joshua stretched out his hand with a javelin or a short sword, some of your versions might say. And God turned the defeat from the last battle into victory. the testimony that God had not abandoned His people. That God was faithful. That He continues to be faithful even when we are not. And again, it's a, to me, yes, it's a story of God's victory, but it's a story of God's restoration. They're back on track to doing God's work. I'm going to move on to verses 24-29. through 29. Let me read those verses. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all of the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction." Now, this should remind us of the battle against the Amalekites with Moses. Remember, his hands had to be, be held up. 
and they defeated them while his hands were, were held up. The commander of the army, by the way, was Joshua that day. So it, it all just ties together. Now here, Joshua has his hand out with the javelin or the, or the short spear, and while he keeps it out the whole time to ensure victory, it's, it's a very similar story. But what is he ensuring? Not so much victory. He didn't draw back his hand until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. What was the problem with the last, with Jericho? They didn't devote everything to destruction. This is Joshua making sure that the people completely obeyed. He's like, we're not going to do this again. I learned that lesson. So point number four there is Joshua ensured and took responsibility for complete obedience this time. Verse 27 went on, Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is today, to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, which according to their law, they, they could not leave him there. At sunset, Joshua commanded and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones which stands there to this day. See, Joshua took steps to make sure that this sin would never happen again. Great leadership principle there. He took responsibility for the people. And he made sure this didn't happen. And when we think of how do we recover from failure, how do we come back from sin, it's not just a light repentance and a light restoration. And I'm sorry, God, and everything's okay. We see from Joshua's example, it's an ongoing commitment to make sure that sin never enters our life again. Now, what if every time we repented of sin and came to God and asked forgiveness, what if we had that kind of commitment to say, this will not trouble me again? And I will remove anything in my life that leads to that. I will remove the temptations. I will make sure that obedience and complete obedience is part of my life. That also is what restoration looks like. That is our response to a God that forgives and restores our response is to be pure, to be holy, to take those steps. And Joshua took those steps and they killed the king and they destroyed all of Harem except for those things that God had said they could take. And finally, we come to the last five verses, six verses. And the scene shifts. And we move from Ai and from the battle to the next part where the people of Israel go to another site and they obey and they further commit themselves to God. And we're going to see them go from Bethel here up to Shechem. And, and they're going to follow God's instructions through Moses in Deuteronomy. And they probably go through the mountain pass there and they, they make it there and we come to verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an, wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. 
and all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all of the assembly of Israel and the woman and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. And some have said this story doesn't fit here, but I I would argue that this story is vitally important here because it represents a commitment ceremony. It represents committing the children of Israel after going through the, the failure at Ai, the success at Ai, coming back and recommitting themselves to God. I think the, the point that we can get out of this is to regularly commit ourselves, regularly remind ourselves and commit ourselves to the new covenant relationship with God. Sorry, the wording there, there was some cut and paste that looks like that happened. Regularly commit ourselves to the new covenant relationship with God. So they got away, they got to these mountains, And these mountains were commanded in Deuteronomy 27 from Moses. And he said, On the day you cross over the Jordan to the land your God is giving you, you'll set up stones and plaster them. And he goes on to say, you'll write the law on them. And Mount Ebal, he said, was um, the, the northern side. So let's say this side's Mount Ebal. And the two mountains are right next to each other. See if I have a picture of that. I do. So Mount Ebal is here. And Mount Ebal was was bare. Just rock on top. And all the people of Mount Ebal represented the curse of God. Congratulations to this side. You guys always said you were the right side. (laughs) So you guys represent the curse of God. And then we have Mount Gerizim to the south over here. and, And Mount Gerizim was fertile and it was green. And you represented the blessing of God. And what Moses told the people to do, and they did because they're about obedience now after Ai... They would come to this middle area here. And by the way, this is Shechem, which we have um, a number of biblical stories about. Sychar, which is where the woman at the well um, met Jesus. And so this was an important area. The, The people would go to that middle area, which formed like an amphitheater, and they would read the law of God. And they would read the curses. And every time they read a curse, the people on a ball would say, Amen, or it is true. And then they would read the blessings. And every time a blessing was read, the people on Mount Gerizim would say, Amen, that's true. And this was a visible commitment ceremony to say, this is what we're about. This is what we will commit to. Our relationship with God. Avoiding the curses. Enjoying the blessings. It was a ceremonial, visible reminder of the covenant of God. A commitment to God's Word and His instructions. It's fascinating to see so many of the pieces that are here, and we're not going to get into it today. We may come back to this section, because it's interesting to see how they set up an altar and what that meant. And they, they did atonement sacrifices, and the altar was set up on Mount Abal. Why? Because that represented the sin and the curses. And the altar represented a a looking forward to the blood of Jesus Christ atoning for that sin. 
And so God already was putting visual symbols into place that would show them how Christ would come and pay for their sin and remove that curse. He was giving hope rather than despair. This morning we end by celebrating communion together, which is one of our visible commitments. This is our Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim as we remind ourselves of the new covenant that was paid for through the body of Christ, willingly given up in sacrifice by the blood of Christ that was shed in our place. And so it's so appropriate at the end of chapter 8 when we are talking about restoration to celebrate together the means of our restoration. To thank Christ for His sacrifice. To recommit ourselves as we should regularly to following Christ in obedience and confession. I'd like to bow our heads and close our eyes before we come to the elements. And this is a time to start by saying, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. Because we know from Paul's instructions to the church at Corinth, we're to come to this table with a pure heart and right heart before God. And if our heart isn't right, if there's sin that is unconfessed, that we have not repented of, don't take the elements. Don't be aching. But know this, because of Christ's sacrifice, right now, in this very moment, you can experience the full, complete forgiveness of God and restoration into relationship with Him by coming to Him and repenting. Asking for His forgiveness. Trusting Him with our lives. Dear God, we thank You for Your sacrifice. We thank you for forgiveness that we cannot earn, that we don't deserve, that really blows my mind that you would even offer. But Lord, because of that, we worship you, we thank you, we give our lives to you. Right now, as we take these elements, remind ourselves of our commitment to you, God. Our love for you. Remind us to be an obedient and holy people that are willing to do your work. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name.